Welcome to Women Transcend. This is a podcast that explores issues which affect women and girls worldwide. Each episode, we dive into a topic of national or international significance and discuss the particular impact on women and girls and how they are able to overcome or transcend. This week, we are going to discuss the election. This was a historic election, which saw the first woman as a major party's candidate for president of the United States. Hillary Clinton was not just the Democratic Party's candidate, but for most of the campaign season, a heavy favorite for the presidency. Hopefully, I am not the one breaking the news to you, but Hillary Clinton lost the race for president to the Republican candidate, Donald Trump. Policy wonks and historians will be taking apart this election piece by piece for years, trying to figure out the contributing factors, the turning points, the mistakes, the highs, the lows, what happened. Today we're going to discuss the political rhetoric around this election. What was the rhetoric from the Democrats, the Republicans? How did it impact the outcome of the race? More generally, what made people women in particular, step into the voting booth and vote the way they did. So here's what we know. 54% of women voted for Clinton and 42% of women voted for Trump. Whereas when you look at the male vote, 41% voted for Clinton while 53% voted for Trump. In some early polling, more than 60% of white women reported to pollsters that they intended to vote for Clinton. In fact, when it came time to vote, only 43% of white women voted for Clinton and 53% voted for Trump. Without throwing too many more numbers into this mix, in short, there was a disconnect between who people reported to pollsters was their preferred candidate and who they ultimately voted for. There are a lot of theories about why this happened, and I'm sure we will be discussing this election post-mortem for a long time to come. I am sure we will do more episodes on this very podcast about gender politics, for sure. But after unpacking some of the ideas behind the disconnect between poll numbers and real votes, you can't get around the impression that either polls were bad, people changed their minds at the last minute, many, many people, or people were not completely truthful when reporting their opinions to pollsters. One thing that has been blamed were the polling questions themselves. Who do you find more likable? Polling question. That doesn't really tell you who you are going to vote for. In fact, the American electorate chose the less likable candidate for president. Who do you find more qualified? Again, the American electorate chose the candidate they considered to be less qualified to be president. But since we are talking about gender rhetoric, we should think about these questions. Let's consider the idea of likability. There is research that this polling question is asked more frequently when a woman is on the ballot. Which candidate do you find more likable? Did we hear a lot about likability when Bush ran against Gore? Not so much. And what does it mean if you like or don't like a candidate? Does it mean the same for women candidates as for candidates who are men? The media gave quite a lot of attention to the likability question in Secretary Clinton, 
But they didn't give the same attention to Bernie Sanders and his likability. It really didn't seem to matter all that much whether supporters liked Bernie Sanders. He frankly comes across kind of as a grumpy old man. Is that likable? But here's the thing. Maybe it doesn't matter if it's a man. People reported that Hillary Clinton was not likable because people say she was too much a part of the establishment. But in an election which saw a vast majority of incumbents receded, you have to wonder if that's really the full story. Let's think about the word likability again. Is this really code for something else? As there is evidence that this is more often a poll question when women are on the ballot, there is some good reason to raise this question. So is it about being likable? Or is it more about fulfilling the expected role and stereotype of a woman? To be sure, Hillary Clinton would not be likable because, as she herself famously said, I suppose I could have stayed home and baked cookies and had teas, but what I decided to do was to fulfill my profession. So going back to the initial question of why the polls specifically for women voters got it so wrong, we need to consider a few things. One is that women voters are not monolithic. Women don't vote as a consistent block. White women came out strongly to vote for Republicans in past elections, so it was a false assumption to think that there would be a sizable party defection based on the fact that there was a woman on the ballot. But we also need to consider the social pressure that women potentially felt to say they were supporting the woman candidate. But then when it was time to cast that sacred ballot, they chose the man. And perhaps they chose the man because of likability. Maybe when it came down to it, some women didn't want to vote for the strong woman, the accomplished woman, the educated woman, because that is not who they are, or at least that is not who they want for their president. Coming up next, we will be joined by an expert in political rhetoric who will help us unpack some of these ideas. Joining us today to discuss gender politics and the rhetoric of the 2016 election is Dr. Taylor Hahn. Dr. Hahn is with Johns Hopkins University Communication Department and is an expert in political rhetoric. What is rhetoric? It is an agenda-based discourse which people use when they are trying to motivate, persuade, or inform an audience based on the agenda. So Dr. Hahn is going to help us dive into the issues around gender politics and gender rhetoric that came up during the historic 2016 election. Welcome, Dr. Hahn, to Women Transcend. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So we're still kind of, I think, all processing the 2016 election and what happened. And it was a groundbreaking election for lots of reasons, one of which is the fact that there was uh, this was our first ever presidential candidate who was a woman. And a lot of people are wondering how that impacted the campaigns and how it impacted the outcome of the election. There was a lot of debate beforehand that Hillary Rodham Clinton would get the women's vote sort of 
by default because she's a woman and the first ever woman running. And what do you think of that sort of supposition? Well, I think that there is a multitude of books that could be written on this uh, question, and I think there probably will be in the coming months and years. But the the question of how sex and gender affected the 2016 election, I think is an interesting one that we as the American public have been discussing and to a certain extent uh, avoiding throughout the candidacy. And so I think that it's worth mentioning that there's always been this undercurrent as to whether or not women necessarily were going to vote for Secretary Clinton based solely on sex and gender. And I think that we've obviously seen that isn't necessarily the case. And what this new uh, Trump America allows for us is to deconstruct how, in many ways, uh, the DNC and pundits and much of the public kind of missed the mark regarding the roles of sex and gender uh, in presidential politics, but also to dig a little deeper about presumptions. Uh, because I think that there was a false comparison that was often constructed between this election cycle and what we saw particularly uh, in the first run of President Obama, where I always um, you know, think back to Larry Wilmore uh, of The Nightly Show, always saying, I'm voting for Obama because he's black. He's also going to be a good president, but that was the only thing for Larry Wilmore. And he was unapologetic about that notion. And I think that that narrative was one overrepresented of, um, you know, African-Americans are necessarily going to vote for Obama. But I think it kind of spilled over into this notion of identity politic being a end all be all for the American voter. And so I think that there was a certain level of presumption uh, that women necessarily were going to uh, support Clinton. Now, that became a little more reasonable as uh, President-elect Trump began to say a number of very discouraging uh, inflammatory remarks regarding women. But I think that it still is something that the DNC in particular is digesting. And so it's a it's a huge topic of conversation uh, that um, I, I'm excited that we're diving into today. And I think that it's going to be a huge topic for many, many years to come. Yeah, I agree. So one of the the other things that was interesting about this election cycle was both the DNC and the RNC had insurgent out of the box candidates with uh, Bernie Sanders on the one side and Donald Trump on the other. And it worked for one for the RNC in terms of the the candidate being successful, but it didn't work so well and by work, I'm not exactly sure what I mean, but it, it it didn't lead to a nomination for the DNC. Yeah, and that's that's a very interesting point, is that Hillary Clinton was simultaneously a revolutionary candidate and a establishment candidate. And this combination, I think, made for a very difficult thin line to walk for her presidential bid, that there was this outsider, uh, somewhat roguish figure, being Bernie Sanders, pushing the DNC and Clinton ever further left. And so there was this coupled notion of Hillary Clinton would do something revolutionary, but also at the same time, she would functionally be an endorsement of 90s liberalism, that it wasn't necessarily the most progressive option on the table. And so... 
you know, there's a there's a lot of narratives as to whether or not Bernie Sanders in effect hurt Hillary Clinton's chances. And I think that that's probably a whole nother podcast, if not a podcast series. But I do think that it was less possible to focus on the revolutionary potential of a woman's candidacy, uh, particularly overcoming a uh, somewhat misogynist candidate from the right. Given that we were also simultaneously grappling with this question of democratic socialism or questions of whether or not identity politic is necessarily the means of uh, lifting people up or merely a means of dividing people. And this was a, a common narrative in Sanders's campaign is, you know, we can't let ourselves be divided. And I'm thinking back to uh, he, in my eyes, uh, unquestionably had the best advertisements uh, of the entire presidential run. But there was one in which you see kind of a face, um, half a face being kind of ripped back and you're gradually seeing more and more faces. And he has this narrative of like, we're all the same people, we're all together. And that probably is a different message than uh, would necessarily have been the best option moving forward for the DNC uh, when you're grappling with how you are going to fit in identity politic. And as you said, this is coming simultaneously with a revolutionary insurgent candidate on the right, Donald Trump. And the, the interesting difference is that Donald Trump was allowed to push forward, whereas by all indications, the DNC was trying very hard to not let their revolutionary candidate uh, kind of shake things up too much. And so different tactics led to different outcomes that arguably the RNC's willingness to kind of let, you know, the unknown candidate run with it might have facilitated this Trump presidency we have. Uh, and these are all what ifs, but they're interesting questions, I think, are starting points for moving forward and thinking about what happened now and what happens in four years. And this sort of feeling that the DNC stacked the deck for Hillary Rodham Clinton to be their candidate despite the enthusiasm behind the the other candidates, Bernie Sanders in particular. Do you think that that impacted women's decision to vote for Hillary Clinton? Mm -hmm. and that, that's a very good question. I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that, you know, the DNC cost themselves the election or that they were necessarily playing an unfair game that is in some way new or, you know, not what we see every single time that we have an election cycle. But I do think that it feeds problematically into narratives of corruption or draining the swamp, that there were multiple central figures in the DNC that were pretty much helping uh, the Clinton campaign uh, under the table and doing everything in their power to kind of help her get the nomination. The, the thing that's really, I think, unfortunate is that I think that this has allowed a narrative to be constructed that uh, functionally women were helping each other to win the presidency um, because we're thinking of Debbie Washington Swartz uh, and we're thinking of, um, oh, I, I can't Brazil. Yes, thank you. Who both have been identified as feeding information to the Clinton campaign. Now, I certainly don't think this was based on a sort of women or gender kind of insider cabal. Uh, but I think that that narrative has been propagated, unfortunately. And here we're thinking of kind of the fake news and kind of these insider things. But I think that, unfortunately, the DNC has given 
um, these fake news organizations a lot of ammunition to work with. And I think that it's something that is in many ways unavoidable, but that we as liberals have to be very aware of as we move forward. Is uh-huh. that how these things are constructed? Yeah. Okay. Now, the the polling throughout the election season seems to have been way off the mark, judging from the presidential results, the <laughs> results of the election. So it seems that that one thing that happened from the obviously from the results, but also from exit polling is that there were some women who said that they were going to vote for Hillary Clinton or maybe said that they were voting for a third party candidate and voted for Trump. Do you have mm-hmm. any 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 thoughts on why that they might have happened? So I think that this is a very interesting question that there's a quiet uh, solitude that exists in our method of polling in the U.S. in which uh, we can say over and over, I'm going to vote for Clinton and then turn around and vote for someone else, vote for Trump, whomever. And I do think that there was a strong social pressure that Trump brought on himself. Uh, If you vote for Trump, you're allowing this bigotry, you're allowing these problematic things. And so people were unable to explicitly say they endorsed Trump. Uh, Now, obviously, this is uh, not everyone because there were Trump signs. There was a lot of enthusiasm. But I do think that there was a silent number of people who supported Trump or at least didn't support Hillary Clinton uh, that didn't necessarily vocalize that focus or that intent uh, because there is this construct that uh, to be against Clinton was to um, endorse misogyny and whatnot. One of the interesting things that kind of came out of this, as I mentioned earlier, was this question of if women were going to vote for Clinton and if they if the polls showed that women very much preferred Clinton, then what happened? Well, a lot of what I kind of have been finding uh, just conversationally talking to people after the election in rural areas was this idea that if it's true that Hillary Clinton's presidency would allow women to gain this office, to do these kind of things in politics and whatnot, that wasn't necessarily something that everyone wanted because the notion that a revolutionary presidency in which a woman becomes president, if that means that women can do X, Y thing, but that as a voter, you don't want to do those things, then that's not necessarily revolutionary to you. And so I think that the boots on the ground notion of Trump is going to focus on America first, focus on a lot more uh, regionalism and nationalism than globalism is probably far more important and more palatable to uh, particularly um, rural America, but also to just individuals that aren't very interested, concerned, or focused toward global or even national politics. Because frankly, what happens in Washington isn't that important on a day-to-day basis unless you really kind of want it to be or unless you are being marginalized in the status quo. So if things are going pretty well for you, except your taxes are too high and people are taking your jobs, then naturally those are things you're going to want to change. And I I don't think that the DNC necessarily did a very good job of tapping into that base and being very sympathetic to those concerns. Because unfortunately, Trump's message resonates. Uh, And I think that 
there was an overenthusiasm to identify Trump supporters as being inherently problematic or endorsing of his problematic personhood. And so I think that we can say as kind of a postmortem that we've lost sight of the economic and social realities that allowed people to see past the unacceptable nature of their candidate. Yeah, interesting. So on the one hand, the DNC might have taken for granted the women's vote. And on the other hand, you're saying that there's a strong argument that we could that could be made that there are plenty of of women that didn't embrace her message and didn't want to vote for her just because of her gender. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think I think that's accurate. And these are data that are we're starting to kind of see develop and that we're starting to pay a little better attention to. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, not everyone was off the mark with uh, Trump winning the presidency. And I say that because it seems like every time I listen to Nate Silver, he reminds everyone that he <laughs> gave Trump what a 16 percent chance of winning. And so he didn't necessarily say Trump was going to lose. Yes. Uh, and so he there did are give him those... a tiny sliver. Exactly. And so that means that he was right, uh, according to Silver. <laughs> but I do think that um, this data is going to be academically fascinating, but I think it's going to have some major impact into how candidates move forward and understand what it means to really tap into American society and understand their base. Yeah. And, and certainly, I think um, how campaigns run and how they consider the middle America, the red mm-hmm. America, moving forward in, in um, future campaigns. And unfortunately, we are running out of time. But I really thank you, Dr. Han, for joining us to talk about this. Um, This could be a series, I can see for sure, because there's so much to unpack. But I really appreciate you joining and all of your insight and thoughts. Thank you for having me. Great. In this final segment, we would like to highlight the achievement of a woman or women who have overcome or transcended to do the amazing things they do. In this episode, we will highlight a group of amazing women who overcame the inherent obstacles put before women running for elected office, such as those we have discussed in today's episode. Although Hillary Clinton did not break that highest, hardest glass ceiling in 2016, many women are getting very close. The 2016 election saw many firsts for some amazing women, and I'm going to highlight them. Kamala Harris was elected to represent California in the Senate, replacing the amazing Barbara Boxer. Ms. Harris is a biracial woman and the first self-identified black woman to be elected to the Senate since 1999. Catherine Cortez Masto was elected to represent the state of Nevada, taking the vacated seat of Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid. She will be the first Latina to serve in the Senate. Maggie Hassan unseated incumbent Republican Kelly Ayotte in a bitterly fought race for Senate in the state of New York. That was a nail-biter down to the very last ballot. And finally, Tammy Duckworth was elected to represent the state of Illinois in the Senate. She unseated Republican incumbent Mark Kirk 
in a race that got a bit ugly towards the end. She is the second of two biracial women elected to the Senate in 2016. We salute Senator-elect Duckworth for her service, as she is an Iraq War veteran who lost both her legs when her Black Hawk helicopter that she was piloting was shot down. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Women Transcend. Be sure to leave a review for us on iTunes or wherever it is that you find your podcasts. That will make it easier for others to find us as well. A big thanks to Dr. Taylor Hahn for joining us today and to John Philbeck for doing all of the fabulous sound engineering so we sound so good. Tweet us at at Women Transcend or follow us on Facebook. We always enjoy hearing from you. That's all for this episode. 